Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Ra Pochotrevedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Flora. Flora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can learn more at flora.com. Very excited to welcome Andrew Allen, co-founder, president, and CEO at Gridstone Bio. Great to have you on today, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me, Rahul. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So, Andrew, to kick us off, um, would love if you could walk us through you know, the arc of your career, what got you interested in, in biotech, and you know, all that you've seen along the way. Sure. Well, I, I began as a very vanilla medical student in, in England. I was studying medicine at Oxford, uh, just enjoying that whole experience. We did a lot of basic science. Uh, the Oxford uh, Medical Degree does a year and a bit of, uh, of basic science. And I got into immunology, uh, which uh, this was in the 80s, mid 80s, was really kind of flourishing and blossoming as some of the early molecular tools, you know, DNA sequencing and so on, were being applied to immunological problems that hitherto had been characterized at a macro level, kind of phenomenologically around, you know, organ rejection and visible things like that. And all of a sudden, it was being reduced to molecular immunology. Super exciting time. T-cell receptor being just been cloned. HLA peptide presentation was being characterized, et cetera. It's very exciting. And even as a sort of very green, very naive medical student, I could sort of sense the excitement. Then I became a practicing physician, uh, and I somewhat fell into uh, renal medicine because of the heavy immunology component. So working on transplantation and immunologic acute renal failure. And then after a few years of practice in the UK, you then tend to do your PhD. So it's done a little bit in a delayed cadence. And I got into forms of renal inflammation and began a partnership with Biogen, who had some reagents that I needed. And that was the aha moment as Biogen you know, flew me over to give a presentation. Once I got over the excitement of being on a plane that somebody else was paying for for the first time in my life, you know, I, I just fell in love with the way biotech companies embraced science and tried to turn science quickly into therapeutics, which is something, of course, that every academic physician talks about, but rarely actually gets to do. And biotech just enables that. So I decided I was going to, after my PhD, I was going to move into the industry and I was going to join Biogen. I think I can say this, it's probably, it's 30 years ago now, so you're going to sue me. Um, so I was going to do a Biogen as their first translational physician. This was a whole new concept back then. Um, and it was going to be working on lupus, nephritis, and uh, other for, and renal transplant rejection and various bits of autoimmunity. And the program I was going to work on blew up in phase two, as happens. Uh, the job opportunity evaporated and in a scramble, I ended up joining McKinsey, who gave me an offer a year or so before, which I'd deferred frankly, thinking I would never take it. Um, and all of a sudden, it became a pretty good option B. So I suddenly found myself weirdly working uh, in a management consulting firm uh, in London doing life science. And of course, it was super exciting there because this is now the late 90s as the Human Genome Project is coming to fruition first phase. And everybody in pharma can see that drug discovery is about to change. And the way in which we do um, genomic informed target discovery and then often developing monoclonal antibodies, this was transformational. And the therapeutic area that clearly was going to be the first one impacted was going to be oncology, where the stakes are so high. Back then in the late 90s, yeah, we had such 
a small range of often not very effective chemotherapies that you know most patients with metastatic disease died very quickly, irrespective of their of the tumor type. And so this transition from sort of old-fashioned, as we now think of it, target discovery and drug discovery to this genomic-fueled uh, new world was something that Farmer was trying to understand and, of course, often reaches to McKinsey for advice. And so I became uh, sort of one of the in-house oncology experts at McKinsey. I moved over to the U.S., did a lot of work in oncology, and then decided it was time to join the industry for real. Uh, so I moved out into, um, into a pharma company at, at Abbott uh, in Chicago, Initially for a few months in, in uh, new product planning, which is kind of weird because I, you know, but I was a McKinsey guy, right? So that's how they think of you. You're a commercial person. But once I landed, they realized I had an MD and a PhD. Then uh, I got pulled over into development. I pointed out that I didn't actually know anything about development to which the answer was, ah, oh, it's fine. You'll learn it. Uh, so I guess I did. And so ever since then, I've been in, uh, in oncology R&D and uh, I, I moved on from Abbott to the West Coast to Chiron where I got the privilege of working on uh, high-dose IL-2, which was the first immunotherapy. So those threads kind of came together again. Um, we were acquired by uh, Novartis. And so I joined an epigenetic company, Farmian, as the chief medical officer. Super interesting, super exciting. And again, more and more, we're seeing epigenetics kind of coming together with, uh, with immunology. So these threads really are starting to be woven, I think, into a fabric now. Uh, Farmium was acquired by Celgene, and then I co-founded Clovis, and we worked on small molecule targeted therapeutics. That was a really fun journey. And then I could see that the understanding of immunology had, had advanced with the checkpoint inhibitors. And there was a seminal moment, which we'll probably go into, when I, I realized that I could see now a brand new path that I really wanted to pursue. And then I formed Gritstone. This was in 2015. And I've been uh, Gritstone. Ever since fighting the good fight, and uh, we're on a on a very good uh, track. Great. And quite a quite a remarkable career already, Andrew. I'm curious when you when you first started thinking about co-founding a, a biotech, what was that entrepreneurial journey like for you? Let's say the first time around, perhaps the when you did it again at, at Gridstone. Yeah, the the first time was with my colleagues from Farmia, and so a guy called Pat Mahaffey, who's a wonderful guy, very smart guy who had really seen an opportunity when he founded Farmium. And it's kind of interesting when you look back on it, people actually don't believe this story because it sounds so fantastical through, through today's eyes. What Pat could see, and this was around the year 2000, was that oncology was about to change. Because in 2000, Big Pharma was mostly on blockbuster primary care products. That was where the huge majority of uh, revenues came from and most of the R&D efforts went there. But Pat could see that oncology was going to become big and biotech was, was really starting to blossom. And therefore, you'd have all these companies really good on R&D, but with limited capabilities in regulatory approvals and commercialization and very limited ability to scale outside of the US. And so Farmy was built to address those needs and became an in-licensing shop. And the drug that's now Videza, which has uh, really done remarkable things in the field of myelodysplastic syndromes, had been developed by Pharmacia Italia, Farm Italia, and was sitting on a shelf in, in somewhere in Italy. And the CLGB, the cooperative group, had run a phase three trial in myelodysplastic syndromes with a positive outcome. But MDS was kind of an ill understood disease that didn't really count as a therapeutic indication back then because you know, there was no approved drug for MDS. And so it was a bit of a curiosity that nobody was pursuing. Again, just think of that now, right? A drug with a positive phase three sitting on a shelf for a major oncology indication. Yeah, hard to imagine. It's inconceivable. 
But Pat was smart enough to spot this opportunity in licensed it, cleaned up the data, submitted it to the FDA, got the approval. In Europe, they wanted a survival study, and, and I was recruited in part to help run and complete that, that study. So that was my sort of first experience in biotech as a chief medical officer. So you're on the executive team. And then Celgene came in, and uh, we had some other assets, and, and Celgene acquired us. And then, you know, as happens, you're sort of turfed out onto the streets, as it were, and you've got some severance payments, so you're not paying great urgency to go get a job. But I fairly quickly started consulting, and you know, everything I do is just too interesting to turn down, really, and I, I like the people I work with. So I was pretty busy, and then somebody approached me about a full-time job that I was pretty attracted to, and so I called Pat to Pat, you know, if we're going to do something, now's the time, otherwise I'm going to take this job. And so I think he, at that point, had sort of rested enough and was ready to get back in the saddle. And the area of interest for us was patient selection and this, this convergence of molecular diagnostics together with targeted therapeutics as a way of improving the benefit risk for new drugs. Because obviously, as the, as the oncology landscape becomes more competitive, as pricing and reimbursement becomes a bigger issue, then the best response for us as an industry and obviously as, as taxpayers and as humans is to figure out how to use our drugs better. And obviously part of that is who, who benefits from the drug. Because we all know that you treat a hundred people, often some fraction benefit and some fraction gets no benefit. And if we can figure that out, everybody wins. And so uh, the patient selection story was, was really exciting. And that was the basis for, for Clovis as we started. And as an in-licensing shop, you need to bring in significant capital because you're going to be basically spending pretty big chunks of money right from the get-go of bringing drugs in. We had the benefit of a bunch of very happy investors who've done well on the Farnian exit. And so raising capital, never easy, was not as, as, as challenging as, uh, as sometimes is the case. And we were able to raise, I think it was 135, going back a ways now, but it was, it was a triple-digit Series A, which at the time was a lot of money. These days, you know, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Chump change, it seems, at least. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, but that was a lot of money. And so um, forming that company was mostly just fun because I had these great colleagues to do it with. Earl Mast, our CFO, is another guy who was sort of instrumental in all of that. It's very good training for then doing it again. So that when I did it on my own, I kind of knew that I knew the, the deal as it were. And you have the benefit of having investors who know you because they've got to know you over the prior, prior 10 years and so on. So that definitely makes it easy, but it can be done without all of that. And I've, I'm on the board now of a small private company called Verge Genomics. The CEO is, uh, is a young woman. Alice uh, Zhang. I know her well. Yeah. Alice yeah. You know, Alice. Yeah. So Alice is awesome. Alice started Verge straight out of her postdoc. And I just have so much respect for how she operates, for her courage. And she's shown it can be done. I think it's an inspiration to all of us of like, yeah, don't wait so long. Just get going. If you've got passion to do something, just go do it. And what she's remarkably good at is, is being very self-aware. This thing, I don't know. Let me go figure it out by talking to people who do know. So her, her willingness, her ability to sort of tap into her network and her network's network to get answers to questions is amazing. So I, I, I really enjoy watching her in action and obviously helping where I can. So I took the sort of the, the the coward's route, as it were, you know, do it with training wheels and then do it on your own. She did it kind of for real. So, uh, you know, kudos to her. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great jumping off point to talk a little bit about the state of biotech right now. And, and we're seeing more and more, I think, founder-led biotechs as well popping up. I'm curious from all that you've seen, what's changed in biotech that's most remarkable over the last decade? And then we'd also love to talk about, you know, kind of where we are now. We're in a period of, you hinted at this, a period of volatility right now. And, and what advice you perhaps have for, for other leaders across the sector? Yeah, it's, um, 
it's a complicated field now. Yeah, let's start with oncology, which obviously I know best. Oncology used to be pretty much a blank slate, as I said at the outset. And now, obviously, it's extremely competitive. And we have the benefit, and patients have the benefit, of having multiple lines of approved therapeutics. What that means, of course, is that when you have a new drug, you're going to be starting it in fifth line or something, really tough patients, and or you're going to be doing a combination study which requires randomization, which is by definition a much bigger study, much more expensive, to establish proof of concept. And so the journey has become much more daunting, clinical and then commercial. Commercial is relevant too. And I've been on the boards of a couple of companies that have actually recently been acquired that both have had commercial journeys a little bit different. One was Epizyme, one was Sierra. And so Epizyme uh, was a public company that developed the first histone methyl transferase inhibitor. So it's an epigenetic drug. Epigenetics is all about gene regulation, very, very sort of fundamental biology. And it's a beautiful drug. It's an oral drug, and it works remarkably well in patients with a certain type of lymphoma. But they launched on their own mid-pandemic into a field where um, all of a sudden, of course, physicians were trying to keep their patients out of hospital. So starting new therapeutics is the last thing on their mind. They can frankly return to a I'll give you a few more doses of rituxan. It's not going to do much, but it's probably enough to just keep your disease in check and keep you out of having to come to hospital. So the launch was really challenging in a competitive field as well, but the PO3 kinase inhibitors also launching into exactly the same indication at around the same time. That was hard. And the company was recently acquired by Ibsen. So, you know, a, a good exit, but, but not for the value that, that perhaps, I think it's a good deal for Ibsen to put it that way. Um, there's a combination study that's running that I suspect is going to be very strongly positive. Potentially this drug becomes part of it, um, a major standard of care, um, but just takes time to get to that, to, to generate data. So that was the epizyme path. So commercialization should not be sniffed at, right? There, there used to be a time when it was, oh, it's easy just in the US, the drugs sell themselves. You used to hear that phrase. It's like, I think nobody says that anymore because it's no longer true. Um, Sierra Oncology had a, a very interesting journey with a sort of a second generation JAK2 inhibitor for myelofibrosis, which is an indication that Insight has dominated for years now with Jackify as the first drug, Roxalinib, which is a very good drug, obviously. But the uh, Sierra drug had a really interesting property of, of both hitting the sort of key enzyme jack, but also sparing the red cell lineage. And anemia is a huge problem in myelofibrosis. So this drug actually did something remarkable, which was to, um, to, to hit the jack enzyme, which is therapeutically useful, often causes a bit of marrow suppression. This drug doesn't, doesn't cause the marrow suppression. So very exciting. And that, we we're getting ready to launch that thing on some positive phase three data. And then the company was acquired by GSK, who obviously are looking to build out their portfolio in that indication. And obviously a great exit for, for the investors. So just that getting to that commercialization, getting drugs approved, it's not enough. Anymore. It's like the whole thing in oncology is tough. Development's tough. Commercialization's tough. So um, we're seeing, I think, some, some challenges there. And, and there's obviously growing interest in other opportunities beyond oncology. I think oncology has established a paradigm. There's still lots of work to be done, but I think it's going to be now real game-changing stuff. And we can talk about that with Gridstone. But obviously with gene therapy now, we're seeing a whole new field opening up uh, with the gene editing as well. So gene editing, gene therapy is obviously now blossoming, starting in rare diseases, single gene defects. Uh, but we're seeing some dramatic results. You know, Intelli has had some lovely data, uh, hopefully CRISPR therapeutics as well. So that's exciting. And then neuroscience, I think, smells to me like oncology 20 years ago. 
that's actually one of the reasons I joined Verge is because I, I think a lot of the learnings we've developed from oncology around patient selection, use of biomarkers, de-risking phase one, twos, et cetera, can be applied usefully to, uh, to neuroscience. You know, we just had this historic um, approval of Amelix, the first drug in years for, for ALS, yeah. which is uh, fantastic. And I'm obviously super excited for patients. Yeah, and, and, it, and it seems to work. Obviously, the data are, are a little bit soft, as you know, hence all the controversy. But I hope, obviously, that's going to be a springboard for, for drugs that have cleaner demonstrations of efficacy, you know, with targeted approaches, with patient selection. It's a really exciting time for neuroscience. So I think my advice to, uh, to young people looking at biotech now would be think carefully about the therapeutic area, think carefully about the technology, and then just you know, make sure you've got an opportunity that's clear and then follow the science. And, and, and people, you know, everyone has different passions. They want to bite off different things, but recognize that, you know, it's, it's uh, novel technologies are hard. They take time. They're going to be stumbles along the way. You got to be patient. So it's, you know, if you go into gene therapy, it's not going to be sort of, you know, all, all easy, plain sailing and in three years, I'll have everything approved and it's you know, on to the next one. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If you, if you want to kind of, if anybody, what you want to, skill set you want to build out, pick your therapeutic area and your technology wisely. Uh, and if you have passion, obviously, it's always a good thing to follow your passion. Yeah. And, and Andrew, I'm curious, uh, there's a two-part question around volatility and let's say the ups and downs in biotech, right? There's inherent risk in everything that we do as it relates to drug development. And as you articulated very nicely, that risk is worth it for the benefit of patients. As you think about this volatility and, and a couple of cycles, I'm sure you've seen a couple of cycles in your career, how do you manage your own emotions around this volatility? That's the first part of the question. And then the second is for your team, given that you know most assets that you're working on will fail along the way, any advice that you can provide to keep the team motivated uh, as well so that, you know, they, they see the, the light at the end of the tunnel as you put it. Yeah. Those two very perceptive questions. Um, so the, the personal emotion thing is, is real. And I'll give you this sort of example of this. Most of us obviously like to be well thought of by our peers and the people we respect. And investors are an important community, right? It's full of smart people whose opinions matter. When you're a public company, investors tell you what they think of you in some sense, with your market cap, you generally have cash and uh, you know, liquid securities, liquid assets. And at some level, your market cap should equal your cash plus whatever future value they think you're going to generate, right? That's what the market cap is. And that's often referred to as the, um, the enterprise value, which is you know, the value of your, what you've built on top of the cash. And so at times we've had a, uh, an enterprise value of a billion dollars and that feels good. And then we've had times where our enterprise value has been negative, where investors essentially are telling you that you are not only not creating value, you're actually just value black hole, destroying the value of the cash that sits in your bank account. And that, if you let it get to you, would obviously be pretty crushing. And so you have to have self-belief. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in the science that you're working on, and you have to believe in the team around you. And that's when it gets tested. When you're at negative enterprise value, it's when it gets most sorely tested. And not everybody can handle it, in truth. You know, I've, I've seen some people come to small companies and this volatility is just too dramatic um, for, for folks to handle. And I think, understand it because it is, it's hard. So you just have to have this reliance. And I think, first of all, you've got to be a person that does have sufficient self-belief. 
that you will keep going, even though people are telling you that you are you know, destroying their value. You also, and this is where it gets interesting, I think it really helps if you have belief in the science. And I always feel that it must be a little bit harder to be a finance, legal person who can't really build conviction in science from your own insights, because it's not your background. You'll have wonderful insights on legal and financial issues, but the science, understanding kind of what the scientists tell you, it's really hard. And most of us who've come through R&D obviously do form our own opinions. You know, some of us get it right, some of us get it wrong, but we form our own opinions you know, based on our experiences and our knowledge. And that's really important. And obviously at some level, you know, when you do kind of, as I've done, you know, you're now basically very exposed, right? Because as a, as a CEO, your assets are you. They are regarding it publicly. They're regarding them as extensions of you. And if they fail, that's you failing. And if they succeed, that's you succeeding. And in biotech, as you say correctly, some things will fail and you just have to be able to withstand that. And, you know, good investors and good people will understand that good people can sometimes develop uh, drugs that don't work. That's okay. That is actually required. If that doesn't happen, then you're not being adventurous enough. You're not innovating enough. So those are the sort of personal. So then in terms of managing the team through, I, I think it's important to always be very clear that what your team has to do is give the drug its best possible chance of succeeding. Ultimately, they are not responsible for the biology, right? That's a really important distinction to draw. And it's interesting that people, everyone pays lip service to that notion, but then they don't actually follow it. So I'll give you an example. In some companies, people who've been associated with successful drugs have an expedited rise in their career because they've been associated with successful drug. Now, you could make a pretty good case that unless you really did do something special, the fact that the biology and the drug worked out does not necessarily make you legendary. I'll give you an example, right? Gleevec is, is a good drug. Uh, and the insight to kind of to, to target BCR able and, uh, and treat that disease with that small molecule kinase inhibitor was a very smart insight from Brian Drucker and others. And, and they deserve tons of credit for that insight. But if you were developing Gleevec, I mean, that drug just works so well that you'd really have to work hard to mess it. And so being a development person on Gleevec does not mean that you have become suddenly the world's best drug developer. It means, frankly, you got a bit lucky, you got a great drug to work on. Now, of course, you can do better or worse. You can accelerate you know, these sales curves and so on by running clever trials that open up commercial opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm not being blase about that, but you get my point, right? A great drug. Yeah not require great drug development. I actually always have a bit more respect for people who've got really marginal drugs approved because that takes real work. <laughs> you've got something that sort of does have some benefit, but it's pretty soft and there's some toxicity that has to be managed. There's black box warning and so on. I mean, getting that kind of drug over the finish line, that really does take effort. And in some ways, I have a lot, a lot more respect, you know, case for case, for people who did the latter versus the former. But they won't often get recognized as being uh, as good as I think they were. So you get the point, right? It's your job is, is not to predict the biology. Oh, wait, you try to obviously the research people in particular, but as, as for most of us, you know, we're not that involved at that stage. It's really then just about developing something to try and impact the biology and give your something the best chance of succeeding. That's your yeah. job. And that's what you have to tell people. So if it fails, it'll be a failure of the biology, not a failure of the team. And if you ran a very well executed clinical trial that was well designed with a good primary endpoint, you get a very clear answer and the answer is, is a resounding negative, then in some ways you've succeeded. 
Now, a board never is going to want to reward you for that, although you can argue they probably should, right? I mean, so again, you know, you, we all have our goals and get their bonuses based on their goal achievements and so on. And the truth is that you're going to get more if the drug works than if it doesn't work. And at some level, that's just wrong. That's, yeah. a, that's a wrong incentive, but that's life, right? I mean, that's yeah. just it is. So long answer to a short question, but it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you know, that the point that you just brought up about if someone had the good fortune of working on a good drug versus having really an uphill climb, are those people now much more likely to make good drugs much more successful or accelerate their path to approval? So it's a really interesting um, way to think about. Uh, so Andrew, would love to now uh, dig into C Gritstone and the exciting science that you all are, are pursuing there as well. Yes, thanks. So we should turn to that, shouldn't we? So I, I obviously spent a lot of time working on in oncology on various drugs. And as chief medical officer, you know, you're, you're the closest, you know, ethically permitted to the patients and to the physicians. You talk to the physicians directly. Obviously, you don't, you're not allowed to see the patients directly, but you obviously learned a lot. And I, I developed this growing sense of frustration that we were developing drugs that were clearly helping people, but they were not curing people. And one particular example sticks in my memory. We worked on PARP inhibitors of Povis, and uh, obviously this class of drugs we sort of helped resuscitate because actually they'd been abandoned by many people. Isn't a whole interesting story around it? But anyway, in 2011 or thereabouts, there was, some, there was a negative trial with a drug that was thought to be a PARP inhibitor, actually wasn't, and the whole field basically got snuffed out, and we helped kind of resuscitate it. And of course, those drugs just dramatically affected people with bracket mutations. So within uh, with breast and ovarian cancer in particular. And we, we were doing a study. We picked up the drug actually been developed in the UK. And so we're doing some work in a center in London. And one of our uh, lead physicians is an, an ovarian specialist, a gynae hog specialist. Her husband was breast cancer doctor. He had a patient who had a BRCA mutation and brain metastases and wanted to access drug. And so we, we made it available to, to him and his patient. She was a woman in her late 30s with a young family, and it was September, October times. And she had a beautiful response and felt well and did really well on the drug and had a wonderful Christmas with her family. But you know, you know that that disease is going to come back and she's in her late 30s. And you know, chances are that before she's 40, she may have lost the fight. And I've been doing it for you know, 15 years at this point. And, and I was just frustrated that we weren't doing better. And when I've worked at Chiron or high-dose IL-2, that's where we saw cures of metastatic disease. And it was rare, as you probably well know, so it was something like 3-ish percent, 3 or 4% of people with metastatic melanoma or kidney cancer cured by high-dose IL-2. But we really had no understanding of how it was working. And so we couldn't find the 2%, the 3%. We couldn't leverage that insight. And so I sort of turned away from cancer in the therapy for a decade because it, we just didn't understand. It was all just guesswork. The checkpoint inhibitors came along, first CTLA-4, then probably more interesting, PD-1, and clearly were dramatically better than IL-2, right? More efficacy and much better tolerated. But that alone was not the insight that we needed. We needed to understand how they worked. And the paper was published at the end of 2014 by a couple of guys that became co-founders of Bridgestone, Tim Chan and Ira Rizvi, who were both at Memorial at the time. And what they showed in their New England Journal paper was that the mechanism behind PD-1, as your first paper was on CTLA-4, the mechanism behind it was probably that these drugs were activating T-cells specific for tumor neoantigens. And this was the key insight because that thesis had been around for a while in animals. This was the first demonstration in humans that it was probably true. 
Anaya had a paper with PD1 with Pembroke soon thereafter in science in lung cans, complementing the findings with CTLA4. So the, the immediate therapeutic hypothesis that was articulated right then that is still the one we work on today was the following, that many patients with solid tumors have immunological ignorance of their tumor. In other words, the patient's immune system doesn't seem to know the tumor's there. The tumor is successfully hidden, which is why it's growing unperturbed by the host immune system. Now, if you're lucky, lucky in inverted commas here, because no one's lucky who has cancer, but if you, if you have melanoma, then chances are actually that your immune system is aware that you've got T cells that recognize neurotransmitters that have infiltrated the tumor. And if I treat you with a checkpoint, those T cells will go back to work killing tumor cells and I have a good chance of long-term survival. Most patients with common solid tumors are not lucky in that way. And if you give them a checkpoint, it's a nothing much happens because they seem not to have the T cells that you need. So we said, well, if we give them the neoantigen reactive T cells using a vaccine, then maybe the checkpoints could work. And so that was the basic idea. And to solve that, you had to solve two problems. Number one, of all the mutations in the tumor, the evidence is that probably two or 3% of them make antigens, make targets for the immune system. And we had no good way of figuring out which were the two or 3%. Secondly, most vaccines are not very good at driving the generation of CD8 T cells, which are the killer T cells that you probably need ultimately to kill tumors. So we had to solve those two problems. We use machine learning to solve the first, and we built a wonderful team in Cambridge, Mass, very sort of sequencing and deep, deep learning smart group. And we trained on human tumor samples. And we started to figure out if we sequenced the tumor, and then we did this technique where you basically isolate the HLA peptide complexes off the tumor cells, you can then identify the peptides by mass spec sequencing. And you can then say, well, which genomic features predict the probability a particular mutation will or will not be found on the surface of the tumor cell? In other words, will function as an antigen. And we generated millions of data points to train a deep learning model that we now use every day that essentially predicts with very high positive predictive value, which mutations will function as neoantigens for that patient. That's called the EDGE model. So deep learning in, published this in Edge Biotech a few years ago. So that's part one of the puzzle. Part two is then, okay, so if I've identified the antigens, now I've got to give them to the patient in a way that'll make them generate CD8 T cells. And so we've developed some vaccine vectors prime with an adenovirus, which obviously people are familiar with now, it's very good for making CD8s. And then we boost with this novel self-amplifying mRNA. And that turned out to be a great choice, as I'll come to in a second. So that's our vaccine system. And we showed that it makes really good CD8 responses. And we put that into humans. And what we started to see is that uh, if you treat patients with colorectal cancer, we pick this because the checkpoints don't really do anything in standard colorectal cancer. If we treated subjects, uh, even in advanced disease at third line, having you know, progressed on, on prior chemotherapy, we're starting to see molecular responses in nearly half of those subjects. And if you have a molecular response, meaning your mutant DNA in the blood goes down, which often mirrors, you know, if you have a protein marker like a CEA, which is often a protein found elevated in colon cancer, if the CTDNA goes down, the CEA goes down, as we call that molecular response, then your chances of surviving longer are dramatically improved. It's not a randomized study, obviously it's a single arm study. So everything I'm saying is interpretation of single arm data, but this split in survival curve between the non-responders who progress and die quickly, unfortunately, as expected, and the molecular responders who seem to live significantly longer than we actually haven't even reached the median yet. And it's over 18 months compared to a median of about seven months in those molecular non-responders. That's a striking observation, small end, striking. 
And then recently at ESMO, we showed something similar with a KRAS uh, off-the-shelf vaccine product, similar kind of concept, but just an off-the-shelf product. And in lung cancer, people who progressed on prior chemoimmunotherapy, we showed the same phenomenon that about 40% have molecular responses. And if you did have a molecular response, the overall survival doubled in that um, sample set. And again, it's a fairly small sample set, very consistent signal. So it looks like it's doing what it was designed to do. It looks like it's generating immune responses in people with cold tumors. We're now testing this in a randomized trial in newly diagnosed metastatic colon cancer. Uh, so that study's underway. We'll have uh, preliminary data in the second half of next year. So that's kind of what we did on the oncology side. Now, let me, let me sort of jump over. With this self-amplifying mRNA platform, of course, people then got a bit interested in mRNA vaccines. And the challenge with mRNA vaccines and all of the first-generation COVID vaccines is that the immunity is not durable, as we all know, right? And it's not durable for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the antibodies fade away. And number two, because variants of the virus end up with relative resistance to the antibodies. So can self-amplifying mRNA help? And I think the answer is yes. And so self-amplifying is different from mRNA in two sort of important ways. Number one, as the name suggests, you actually, the RNA copies itself and so you get more antigen for longer. And antigen persistence is probably important for driving immunological memory, right? The longer the antigen is around, the better the memory that seems to ensue. And that probably makes some sense. And secondly, because the RNA copies itself, you get double-stranded RNA, which is very unnatural, very provocative to your immune system. So you get a stronger drive to your immune system, which potentially gives you these better antibodies and better T cells, importantly, particularly the CD8 T cells. So these two attributes mean that in principle, if you apply this vector system to the problem of SARS-CoV-2, you may end up with a better durable immune response. And we further modified, so our vaccine doesn't just contain spike, but it contains conserved regions of other genes in the, in the SARS-CoV-2 genome. And conserved meaning they don't change over time. So this whole problem with Omicron being different from the original reference sequence up doesn't apply here because these are bits of the virus that don't change because they can't, but they don't sit on the surface of the virus. So they're not targets for antibodies, but they can be targets for T cells. And so again, if you've got good insight into which bits of the virus could be processed and presented on the surface, we use our deep learning model again, and then you can generate T cells as well as antibodies. Then you've got the substrate for superior clinical protection. That's the product that, we've been, that we're currently testing in a variety of phase one studies some in the UK, some in the US here with, with NIH, and some in South Africa funded by CEPI, which is in vaccine-naive subjects. So a lot of data coming, but so far what we're seeing is that the antibody levels are really good, and strikingly, in a small number of subjects where we have data now, six months, there is no decay in the amount of antibody in the blood. It's a flat line from one month to six months, which is really dramatic. Uh, so if we see that repeated in more subjects, that's going to be super exciting. And then if we see this continued evidence that we're driving T-cell responses to these fixed bits of the virus. We've seen that already. We've shown some of those data publicly. This becomes potential second-generation product to give us durable immunity, which is obviously That's really interesting approach, Andrew. I'm curious, are there any other companies, as far as you're aware, that are, that are pursuing this sort of approach to SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, every, everybody wants greater durability and everybody wants variant proofing. If you are, you know, many companies are focused on the antibody side because they recognize that the CD8 generation is mere modest at best. And so there's this idea, can we make a universal spike that sort of has 
flavors from all the different variants. Uh, yeah, there's maybe a little work, but we've been trying that with flu for a long time. We haven't, haven't succeeded yet. So I think that carries some risk. The T-cell side is obviously more propelling. And, and I th- yes, people are interested in this. And it gets to this fundamental question of, of how do we monitor vaccines? How do we measure them? And it's really striking that, and obviously I come from a basic immunology background, if you actually look at natural immune response to virus, it comprises antibodies and T-cells. If you think about how we approve vaccines, it's entirely based on antibodies, which makes no sense. And the only reason we do that is because measuring T-cells is hard. Historically, it's been very hard. And most vaccines don't make good CD8 T-cells. And so it's just not been either practicable nor important to measure them. So we've ignored, but I think we ignore them at our peril. And there are some super interesting data coming out now suggesting that it was actually published a couple of weeks ago in a, a very nice review by a guy called Dan Baruch, who's a, a virologist, immunologist at uh, Beth Israel. In the New England Journal, he, he talks through its review on COVID vaccines. And at the end, there's a figure looking at the disease rate based on you know, per 100,000 vaccinees by vaccine type. And for the early variants of the pandemic, obviously the mRNA vaccines were really very effective and clearly arrested the pandemic. And we're all super thankful for that. There's beautiful work from Moderna and BioNTech. But we've obviously, we're now living with the limitations of those approaches. And when you look at Omicron, particularly BA4, BA5, the disease rate is ticking up, right? There's vaccine providing limited protection. The best protection based on the data, this is out of the CDC data, it's in this chart in this review, actually comes from the adenoviral vaccines. And the argument will be, this is because of T-cells, because the antibody levels from the adenovirus are, are not as good. They, they may be a bit more durable, certainly not as high, but the T-cell response is likely a lot stronger. And so that gets very interesting and starts to shine the light on the power of T-cells. And so I think we're starting to recognize that A, T-cells are important and we should be measuring. B, that we now have a technology developed by a company called Adaptive, biotech company in Seattle, where you can actually quantify T-cells from a regular blood draw, no special sample prep, very easy. So now for the first time, you can actually measure T-cells in everybody on a big clinical trial. So that's a huge step change. And then the, the interesting question becomes, how do I assess clinical effectiveness of an antibody and a T-cell response? Because they both contribute. And this reductive world we've lived in, where we've said all benefit accrues entirely from antibodies, is obviously flawed. So how do we make it better? How do we measure clinical disease and clinical protection and assess whether that relates to antibody or T-cell or both? That's the challenge that lies in front of us. But it's a challenge we have to embrace because we'll get better vaccines as a consequence. So I'm super excited about this whole field. I think that we're ready now for a really significant shift in literally the whole of vaccinology to start thinking at scale about T-cell immunity as a complement to antibody immunity, particularly for some of these viruses. And I think it could really transform influenza, COVID and pancorona, maybe things like RSV and some of the other common respiratory viruses that, you know, kill meaningful numbers of citizens every year, particularly obviously older folks and immunocompromised folks. So there's a lot of interest in developing pan-respiratory vaccines. And I think leveraging the T-cell side of the house to complement the antibodies is becoming an imperative. And I think we've got the tools now to start actually doing that. And it's a really exciting time, I think, for the field. Yeah, I certainly agree. You know, the pandemic has been a forcing function to quickly accelerate a lot of the science around this. And, you know, as you as you alluded to, even after the pandemic and, and COVID, I think it, it certainly lends itself really nicely to a host of other indications that do require some innovation right now. Yeah, it's, it, it's such an exciting area. And obviously the technologies are changing. And, 
you know, the first generation RNAs, again, they were wonderful, but I think we can do better. And different people are taking different approaches now. Obviously, there's this notion of circular RNA. We do self-amplifying. You know, we'll, we'll see uh, as ever. The thing I love about our industry is that we all compete and we're all super competitive and ferociously so. And the people who win are patients. Because when we're all, when you've got a whole bunch of smart people trying different things and competing aggressively with each other, patients win. It's the, it's the beautiful thing about our industry, I think. Yeah, very, very well said, Andrew. And Andrew, you know, I'm curious now, as you, as you think about the pandemic and we all had to change how we work, and now we're in this increased time of, of volatility. During these times of volatility, how do you change your approach to let's say R&D operating models that have been in effect for a while, does that change your perspective on how to operate? Actually, remarkably little. I have an extraordinary team of really dedicated folk because I think you, we, we all should think back to March of 2020 when there was fear. There was, um, and that's, I, I don't think I'm overstating it. There was fear about getting infected and, and dying. And we just didn't know very much. All we knew was that this was a terrible new pandemic that was hospitalizing huge numbers of people, flooding our hospitals, overwhelming healthcare systems, and, and lots of people were dying. There was fear. Our team, the R&D team uh, and our manufacturing team carried on coming to work every day. Because if you're a lab scientist, you can't do it at home. Uh, and so they developed work practices, uh, obviously, to accommodate separation, masking and, and cleaning and so on and so forth. You know, fairly strict quarantine procedures. And we did the same thing in our biomanufacturing facility and they came to work every day. So actually, yes, there were some changes in terms of you know, masks and, and just how to socialize, but fundamentally they just kept coming to work. And I'm just profoundly impressed and grateful to them for doing so. Pen pushers like me uh, obviously did not need to go in and should not go in because we're just you know, adding to their risk. So I think the responsible thing for us to do was to stay home during that early phase. Uh, but obviously now we're, we're all heading back. Now, there are members of our team who really actually benefit from having peace. I'll give you an example, right? Machine learning folks and bioinformatics folks, they often wanted a quiet room. Uh, yeah, I remember this, you know, when we, when we first formed our, you know, had premises in uh, Cambridge, we had a sort of area reserved and they'd sit in there. No talking was allowed. They'd actually often put the headphones on, just no ambient noise. That's what they want. So those folks obviously can work from home perfectly. They don't have to commute. It's just easier, better. And I think this has really given them that opportunity where no one's going to say you cannot be effective at home. So I think the way I approach this is on a case-by-case -case basis, as ever in life, I think blanket rules are usually a bad idea because you end up, you know, yes, the goal is to sort of try and do the best overall, but we don't have to integrate. We can actually differentiate. So we, we play it kind of function by function. I'm a strong believer. I think everyone these days believes in the power of coming together physically. And so we started to do a lot more of that, but we are not mandating it. We are encouraging it strongly, but it was not yet reached a point of mandate. And we encourage people to do it on, on the same day so that you get all the benefits of interaction and to actually try and have meetings on those days so that you can benefit from being physically co-present. So we've sort of been slowly moving to back towards where we were. We will never go fully back to where we were. And the obvious benefit that's going to to us is on rent. We are going to be reconfiguring offices. There'll be less dedicated office space. There'll be more hot desking or whatever term you prefer. Uh, lots of small conference rooms and it'll save us all money. So that's, that's a, a little benefit that comes from us. I think people generally like it. Yeah. If they want to come to work and some people do, because you know, for whatever reason they, they find it easier, 
great, we can accommodate you, no problem. But if you if you like this mixed environment, that's fine as well. So we're we're very so we're proving to be very flexible here, and I think yeah, that's the right way to be. And it's you know I'm a little bit of a fossil, you know I'm sort of, I'm so used to just going to work every day. Yeah, uh, obviously a lot of our younger folks are, are much less that's much less ingrained in them, and so we're sort of each I think learning to accommodate each other's dis, you know natural practices, recognizing none of this is natural. This is just habit, right? So I, I think we're sort of meeting in the middle. You know, my my comfort zone is when everyone's there, but that's just not necessary or desirable for a lot of people. So I recognize that. So I'm not indulging my preferences. I'm trying to accommodate the collective here. Sure. Great. Well, Andrew, to, to wrap up, you know, you've certainly seen a lot over the course of your career and I'm sure um, have had quite a few learnings along the way. If I could ask you to reflect for a minute, what's one piece of advice you'd like to, or you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? It's, it's such an interesting question, Lee. I think it would be, I'm so impressed by Alice. Just to sort of come back, she started early. And of course, she didn't have all of the quote necessary experiences. And she's demonstrated that those are not necessary because she's smart at leveraging the people around her. And so I think the advice I'd give myself was just start earlier, just have, have courage and start earlier. It is absolutely not what we do in biotech, as you well know. It's what they do in tech. And I think that was part of Alice's inspiration. So her financing model has been a little bit tech driven and that's and it's all the better for it. So I think that would be the advice is just start earlier. Although at some level, obviously the, the thing that fires me up at Gritstone is this, these insights into cancer immunology and infectious you know, vaccinology, all coming back to T cells, which is where I started in you know, 1980, whatever year it was, 1986, when I started immunology and we were just beginning to understand molecular immunology. It all comes back to that set of insights. And so I think, you know, keep following the science, which I think I've largely done. Uh, use that as your compass because the markets, other things are not reliable and cannot and should not be your compass. The science should be your compass. You've got to be clear-eyed about data, which means trying to see it for what it is. You, there's always a desire to make it look better than it is because you've spent so much time and energy and money on it, but you've got to try and be clear-eyed and having people around you that have contrasting views is super helpful. I love having some of our team who are sort of, they're always looking for the holes. And at some level, that's annoying. And it, of course, a better level is absolutely critical. They do that. And so I, I love just having a bunch of people looking at data with all their different experiences and ways of interpreting it, because that's how you then see truth. The science never lies. So data is data. So stay close to data, to the basic science, read the literature, understand what you're doing, I think is key. That's your compass. Start early, use that as your compass and just pull great people around you and then you'll just have a wonderful career and hopefully make a difference for, uh, for, for people. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for, for joining us today and, and for sharing, I'm sure, what is a very uh, small piece of all the knowledge that you've uh, accrued over the years and, and also uh, thanks to your team for the important work that you all are pursuing. Thank you, Hold. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.